Welcome to the BNA Talks podcast from BNA Church in Bristol. We're working our way through Mark's gospel this term, and what we do in this podcast is we take time, we look at a whole chapter, we read it together, we talk about what's going on, and then we ask some questions to help us um, grow as followers of Jesus. So, Mark chapter 12, reading from verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So Jesus is in the temple and teaching, and this is a parable that he tells, as we've just realized at the end there, that is clearly about those who are, who are in charge of the Jewish nation at the time, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And he uses the image of a vineyard, and a vineyard that a man has created, has dug, has put the wine press, has put the wall around it to protect it, and then has handed over to ten- tenants. If we were to go into the Old Testament, for example, Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard is a, a traditional way to refer to uh, the nation of Israel. So when Jesus starts telling this parable about a vineyard, all of his listeners would know he is talking about Israel. And it was common in that world for there to be tenant farmers. So again, it's one of those stories. Jesus, when he tells parables, creates an image that people understand, the idea of the tenant farmer, the farmer who is stewarding something that belongs to another. And so the story unfolds. The people of Israel have been put in the land, the tenant farmers in the vineyard, and the owner sends servants to them. And those are the prophets uh, and they're, they're a mixture of beaten up and killed. But, but actually the prophets were persecuted. They weren't listened to. So um, one of my sort of my favorite prophet is Jeremiah. Uh, and there's this one, uh, he, he has a prophecy in the king in Jerusalem at the time as the prophecy is read, tears off strips and throws it into the fire. Uh, and so resistance grows over time uh, in the parable to the, tenant, to the tenants hearing from the, what the owner wants. Uh, and in Israel, to the people hearing the word of God. And so in the parable, in the end, the owner decides to send his son. Who is the son? Well, we know from the baptism and from the transfiguration, it is Jesus. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my son whom I love. And so Jesus is now talking about himself. And then he goes to quote Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone, something that Peter will pick up in his letter in 1 Peter, Paul will pick up in Ephesians and in Romans, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone 
um, of the church, uh, of the new people of God. Um, and so he is basically in this parable um, explaining what's going on, is that the son has come, Messiah has come, and the, the Jewish people do not receive him for who he is and instead reject him. But actually in that rejection, this stone that has been rejected will become the cornerstone of the church, the new people of God. And um, The challenge there, I think, that comes out is, it's one about like, well, who, whose is the vineyard and, and why are we in the vineyard? Um, and the people of Israel maybe had forgotten that, that they had been called by God to be a light to the nations and their job was to serve him. And that they were kind of stewards and tenants of what God was doing in the world. And it can become quite easy for us, I think, to do that as well, to let a lens drop down and to see um, either all that we have or all that we've been given, all that we do from a lens of kind of what suits us. So the tenants are going, well, actually, what suits us running this vineyard as opposed to what serves the owner of the vineyard? And so it's that sense, it's a, it's a kind of understanding of the word for me, it's like vocation, is that we all have a calling from God to point to him and to live for his ways. And it's very easy for that vocation to become about us. And when it does, we fail to hear from God. It ends, though, with them, uh, they're, they're afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. But they want, they want rid of Jesus because he's calling them out. Let's read on, verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So, so now they're sending some other people to go, um, let's catch them out in their words. What's interesting is the Pharisees and the Herodians, you see the people who are kind of sometimes opposed to one another, are now coming together <laughs> uh, in opposition to Jesus. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. Um, they don't really care about that. They're just trying to, um, in Ireland we'd say, plumb all sin. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So this is like, oh, can you, can you say something and we'll, we, we'll catch you out? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew the hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he said. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, we'll give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And they were amazed at them. So big debate of the day would be uh, taxes. So Jews had to pay tax to the temple and then on top of that had to pay uh, tax to the Romans. Um, they're trying to lay a trap around this big issue. So the, the, the word trap there is the same word that could be used of as, you know, of a snare, so to capture a non-suspecting animal. Uh, and the compliments, of course, as I said when I was reading, it, is all part of the trap. Uh, and so the big political question of the day is, are the Jews obliged to pay taxes to the non-religious authorities? And there had been a revolt in AD 60 led by a guy called Judas from Galilee over this whole issue. And um, so, so this whole thing is kind of, it's very live. It's a very kind of emotive thing. Um, I mean, in our day, tax is a kind of emotive thing, of course, isn't it? Nobody likes to pay tax. Um, and this idea of, of the language that's used is this idea of a debt. So is it, you know, is there a, do we have a debt to this guy, Caesar, who, who we don't really recognize? Jesus asked them for the coin, which is a really brilliant move because they're on the temple. Uh, they're on the temple grounds, probably. 
where there are no images of any of the gods, and yet they pull out a coin, uh, and on is, is the image of Caesar, who calls himself a god. And so he's immediately, he's kind of, um, he's put them in a difficult situation because they're like coming at him going, oh, we don't, you know, we shouldn't like this um, coin, we shouldn't be paying these taxes, and yet they have one. So they're using these coins, um, as you would have had to in everyday life. So, so there's a sense that they would have thought this coin was blasphemous because Caesar says, I'm a god, and you're not supposed to have images of God. And as I said, we're in the temple, the place of the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, not Caesar. Uh, and so, so straight away, doing that is brilliant because he's put them on the back foot. And then he says to them, whose image is on the coin? And they say Caesar's. And so he says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and, and give to God what is God's. And that explodes the whole question around tax into image and whose image um, do we bear and therefore to whom do we owe everything so suddenly the conversation ceases to be about tax and it becomes about your life and my life if we have been made in the image of god if we've been marked by the one who made us you know like when you take something silver and you turn it upside down and you can see the marks of who made it um, what do we owe to our creator and so straight away he's saying well actually you're willing to carry around something that Caesar's made and operate in his world. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But also you say that you operate in the world of God and, and are made in his image. Give to him what is his. And what is God's? Caesar just wants some tax. God wants all of us. God wants all of us. Again, it's the same lens that's being put on there. So the lens of the parable is, can we use this vineyard for ourselves? The lens of the tax is, is sh should, you know, this is my money. Should I be giving it away? Or, you know, it's kind of, it's putting us at the center. And then there's another question, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Um, just pausing there, um, if you read the laws in Leviticus and, and, and in the, the early books of the Old Testament, you will see that there is a really um, high regard for care for family that would have been um, at odds with the, the, the world of its day. So there's one bit as um, the people are about to enter into the land where uh, a member of one of the tribes comes and says, My fa our father has died and yet, and we're all daughters, but yet his name shouldn't die out. Please can we inherit? And Moses writes in this law that actually says, you know, if, if there are only daughters that they should inherit, which would have been massively countercultural. So, so when Moses was writing these laws around marriage, it was about um, honoring the name and it was about protecting um, women as well. And so this idea of, of uh, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring um, for his brother is this idea of, of, of not leaving somebody destitute. So, so that's the context, this, this law about marriage. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one uh, married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, now Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures of the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. 
So they've asked this question basically to try and again it's to try and trick him out, you know, actually look, here's a scenario. There's this resurrection, which we don't believe in, and then there's gonna be this woman and in and in this previous life she's had these seven husbands. Who whose is she? Who does she belong to? Um the Sadducees had a lot of political power. They were kind of the upper classes and they compromised with Rome. And as I said, the, philosophically they reject this concept of res- of um of resurrection. The They've cited this law, um, and the example, it's a really good way of doing this. It's, it's, it's a nice example, and it's completely bonkers, because, of course, this kind of stuff wouldn't happen. Um, Jesus, like he does with the tax thing, shifts the thing and goes, actually, you don't really understand what you're talking about. Uh, the resurrection isn't about this life being the same, um, but the other side of something, and so, therefore, one woman and seven husbands. Um, the resurrection is a different quality of life, a different type of life and so he shifts it around to say actually you're thinking about death and then something else whereas actually god is the god of the living um and this idea that that god is at work and is keeping his promises uh, and that he is good and and then resurrection of course is at the heart of our future hope as christians we believe that one day this earth this head there'll be a new earth a new heaven and a new earth and god will come and dwell with us and 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 the resurrection life is is sort of the same but radically different and one of the things that's radically different about it is jesus says there won't be marriage and that marriage this side of eternity it is a gift from God, but it's a calling as well, a vocation to point to what God is like and to point to the relationship between Jesus and the church. And so the purpose of marriage will have ended in the resurrection. So he's basically saying, you're asking me about something to do with now, and I'm talking about then, and then looks very different. And he's sort of saying, if you looked into the scriptures, you would see that. Again, I wonder for us this how often do we think about the next life and you know as being like this life as opposed to being utterly transformed and, and different and wonderful and with Jesus? And then how often do we therefore live for this life and not the next life because we think they're kind of pretty much the same? Or maybe this life is is all there is. Really, we're like we 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 might not say we're Sadducees, but but actually in terms of that we live like there is no going to be no resurrection. And so he's calling them out. He's basically saying, "You've asked me a good question." But it's because you misunderstood the purpose of marriage um, and the purpose of new life. Um, and actually, you're focusing on death. Let's focus on life. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given him a good answer. So this actually, this guy is now being portrayed in a good light. He asked of all the commandments, which is the most important. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The Shema, a prayer said twice a day by Jews to focus the mind on the uniqueness of who God is. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. From then on, no one dared ask him any questions. So this guy comes, it's really, he's come in a, uh, in a positive light and he says, oh, I'm really interested by what you're saying, Jesus. Can I ask you about what the greatest commandment is? This again is another big issue of the day. There's... Um, I'm saying this off the top of my head, but I think 643 commandments in the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Bible, um, divided into the, the majority of them are kind of prohibitive, don't do this, with um, 
about 200 and something saying live like this uh, and so there was constant debates about how you followed all these commandments and some of them and there was one debate was what's a heavy commandment and what's a light commandment so therefore if you break it the consequences are worse or not so bad and then the other con question that was being asked all the time is well what are the foundational commandments what are the ones off which everything spins so that's the context of this guy's question he's saying to jesus what what's the what's the commandment of which everything spins interestingly enough debate of the day was sometimes it's all around love for the other some you know serving the other sometimes it's all around serving god jesus uh, uniquely brings them together so he's asked what's the one commandment and he gives a reply which says um two love the lord your god with all your uh, let's read it, with all your heart, so, you know, your, your emotional life, with all your soul, your spiritual life, with all your mind, your intellectual life, and with all your strength, your will. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So he brings them together. So the first one is basically love God with all you have got. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in our world, to love as ourselves feels, might not be something we quite get because in a world that's a bit more therapeutic, a lot of people don't really love themselves or are aware of their brokenness. The other way to see it is basically love others as you would want to be treated if you were being treated the absolute best. Essentially, he's saying, put God first, put other people first. Kind of a bit of a challenge in our culture where it's, it's all look inside to find your true self and sort yourself out and then you'll be able to make a difference in the world. And Jesus says, no, um, love God, love others, and then see what happens to you. So that's what, that's what he says to this guy. And then the guy responds and says, great, and cites Micah chapter 6. I think you're right, Jesus, he says. You know, actually, it's better to have this love than it is just to follow religious rules or burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then the aha moment in this section is Jesus comes back and says, yes, and then goes, you are not far from the kingdom of god you are not far from the kingdom of god and it's um it's a really interesting question because the guy basically has seen it but jesus says you're you're not there but you're near and i think the thing there for me is is an understanding that that because of our love it's finite and our love is broken and our love is turned in on ourselves because of our sin that we cannot love god with all we've got and we cannot love our neighbors as ourselves and so we can see how we should be, but we know we can't quite get there. So Jesus says, yes, you can see it, but you're near. It's just at, it's just beyond your reach. And that's to point us to him. So Jesus doesn't come to teach us about the commandments. He doesn't come to give us an example. He comes to save us and to rescue us and then to give us new life so that we can fulfill the commandments. So these commandments to love God with all we've got and to love others as ourselves are only possible when we have received the love and the forgiveness of God that Jesus has won for us on the cross. And then we're able to do this. So we don't love God, love others, and then find ourselves in the kingdom. We, we find ourselves in the kingdom when we receive Jesus, and then we are enabled to love God as he loves us and to love others as God loves them as well. Does that make sense? It's quite a key thing, I think, um, and it's kind of sitting in, if you sit, we're going to roll on with the chapter, but it sits in, we've just had the vineyard where the tenants are thinking about themselves in the vineyard. We've just had the conversation about tax and what should I do with my money, and then we've just had the conversation about marriage and who's married to whom, and Jesus goes, your lens is you, you, you. You need to put a lens which is me and others, and then see what happens. 
Let's read on, verse 35. It's a long chapter, this one. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I, until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord. How then can he be a son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. So now he turns the tables, and instead of them asking questions, he asks them a question. And so they've got this whole thing where um, everybody's like... Um, uh, who who is the Messiah? People are looking for the Messiah. And in 2 Samuel, God promises David that, yes, David, you're not going to get to build a temple, but one day your, king, your kingdom will endure forever and one, will, one from your line will sit on this throne forever. So the Messiah was going to be one in the line of David. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, what we, we read at Christmas, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and that one will sit on David's throne. Um, and Amos chapter 9, a prophecy about Israel being restored and David's throne being restored. So so they're looking for a Messiah to come who is one who is in the line of David. But then Jesus here quotes Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. And there's three points in this in this just short quote. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand till I put your enemies onto your feet. God addresses a descendant of David, but who is also David's Lord. It also points to where Jesus goes to at the resurrection. Sit at my right hand to the side of the Father. And it points to, put your enemies under my feet, the victory that is coming at Easter. And so Jesus says to these experts, you're looking for one to come who's in the line of David, a son of David, and yet David himself says, this one is my Lord. How can that be? Now we know, because we know about the Incarnation, so we've just had in uh, the church calendar the Annunciation, nine months to Christmas, and the visit of um, the angel Gabriel to tell Mary that she will be with child. Uh, and so we know that in the Incarnation, God himself becomes one of us. These guys don't know that. So he's like, how can, how can a son of David be David's Lord? They don't know the answer. And because they don't know the answer... They don't say anything. And I love the fact that the crowd listen with delight. They're like, yeah, it's like a mic drop moment. Um, anyway, on we go. Warning against the teachers of the law, verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They like to have the most important seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Basically, Watch out for people whose authority is misdirected. Watch out for people who draw attention to themselves and not to God. And that, con and that watch is kind of in the imperative, be on constant watch. Be on constant watch. Um, it, in his day, how they greeted people would greet one another with great big shows of like, oh, how important I am, like my status. They would also wear clothing that said, look how wonderful I am. They would also, look, I must sit here. And, and basically he's saying, look, you can spot actually people for whom it's all about them. Watch out for them because if it's all about them, it's not about me. And therefore it's definitely not about you. Um, the cheating widow thing, it could be because... Um, they, these, some of these people might have charged for prayers. They might not have uh, let widows off debts. Um, so they would basically be taking for themselves again. But at the same time, these kind of big, long, pious prayers, look how wonderful I am. So, so just watch out. Um, there will be people who are drawing attention to themselves. Be careful, because um, they'll take you down. 
Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins with only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live. So this is probably in the temple um, in the Court of Women. There were uh, 13 boxes built into the wall in the Court of Women where people could put in money. Uh, and so people would come, and again, it's, it's linked straight to the teacher's law. Like if you were coming to give, <clears throat> you know, like the equivalent of having like one of those big large checks on Red Nose Day or, or um, uh, the Pudsey Day, what's that one called? Children in Need, you know, look at this big check. You know, you could throw your coins into... Um, the, the, the boxes, they made a lot of noise and people could go, oh, you're being really, really generous. Uh, and so all these people are doing this. And they, they, again, drawing attention to themselves. And then this lady comes and she puts in the equivalent of six minutes, six minutes of the minimum wage, six minutes. Um, how can we tell she's a widow? Probably because of her dress. Um, um, although Jesus, of course, because of his, um, his perfect relationship with his heavenly form and the Holy Spirit, could have also known because the Spirit told him. But she's a widow, and she puts in six minutes' worth of work. And Jesus says she's given all that she has, and that's greater by far. And it's a real reminder of how God sees. He sees the heart. Um, And so when we serve, when we pray, when we give, he sees the heart, and we give within the measure Um, that we have been given. So there are some people who have nothing who are far more generous than people who have uh, yachts and um, multiple homes and all that kind of thing because their generosity is far higher. Uh, And so it's a call. This chapter, I think, is a call to put God first, to put others first, uh, and not to view everything through the lens of this world and how we measure, but to view it through God and his love and how he measures. That is Mark chapter 12. We always end with three questions. What did I learn or what struck me about what God is like? What did I need to hear as a follower of Jesus? And what truth from this chapter makes a difference in the lives of those I love and serve? They're the up, in, out questions. Up, what did I learn about God? In, what did I learn about me? Out, what did I learn for others? God bless. And next week we'll be with you for Mark chapter 13.